Good morning. My name's Monica and I'm going to read God's word um, to us. Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're starting at verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbour. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up to it for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Please keep your Bibles open there at Ephesians chapter 4. Today we're thinking about what it means to live as Christians in the world. And the increasing, it seems, increasing temptation as Christians is to not only live in the world, but to live like the world. To just blend in completely, such that we look, act and speak no different from the world around us, because for whatever reason we don't want to attract unwanted attention, do we, from those in the world around us? It's a bit like this little guy on the screen. He's a chameleon, obviously. And he's doing a pretty good job of blending into his surroundings. I've actually got three chameleon pictures blending in, and I'm going to take a vote on which one you think's doing the best job of blending in. So I've got this one, pretty good. And then I've got this one, also not bad. The green's a bit of a standout, but... And then I've got this one. Okay, that's amazing. All right, who's going to vote? Who thinks that's the best one? Hands up. No one. Oh, one. Monica's got that one. And that one? A few. And what about that one? Well, he's the winner. All right. Blending in there uh, is our chameleons. Then we've got this one. Making a terrible attempt at blending in, but looking extraordinarily cute, don't you think? Well, I can tell you why this one isn't blending in. 
This one is a Christian chameleon, you see. (laughs) And he's got his hand up and he's asking himself the question, do I want to blend in with the world around me? And the answer is no. No, he doesn't want to blend in with the world around him because he's a Christian. Even though he's a chameleon, he wants to stand out uh, in in the world around him. He's asking himself that question. And we need to ask ourselves uh, that question today. Are we Christian chameleons who are kind of blending in with the rest of the world and living just as they do? And if someone were to ask you, if, if someone was to find out that you're a Christian, would they be shocked? I wonder if that's ever happened to you, that someone's found out you're a Christian. You're like, really? That's not good, is it? That's happened to me. Um, or are we keen to stand out? We're going to see a bit more of this cutie as we get along. Um, it's two days, uh, sorry, it's almost Christmas Eve, when is it? Four days time, Thursday. We're on the eve of uh, Christmas Eve and Lara and I have had our tree up for a month now and there's a picture of our tree uh, on the screen behind me. That's a, no, it's not, of course. Thanks, Will. Um, hopefully you're starting to relax, hopefully you're starting to wind down, maybe you're not, maybe you're working right through. Um, but hopefully you're starting to wind down and you're starting to get excited about Christmas and maybe seeing some family, maybe having a holiday. I have to tell you that God's chosen a word for us today in the Bible that's quite hard-hitting, just as we're starting to relax and wind down. I've got this hard-hitting word from God. Paul writes in verse 17, I tell you this, I insist on it in the Lord, you must no longer live as the pagans do. God's word today is hard-hitting and non-negotiable as well, if you're a Christian. It's all about putting off sin and putting on godliness and Christ-likeness. And we will see that if we're not willing to firstly listen and then secondly submit to God's Word and put off sin, we put ourselves in grave danger. But I hasten to add, this is actually at the heart of the Christmas message. This is a timely message to us, even though it's hard-hitting. Christmas at its heart is not about candy canes and it's not about Santa Claus, it's not about gifts and eating too much food, it's not even about family. Christmas at its heart is about sin. Christmas at its heart is about sin. If it wasn't for sin... Christmas wouldn't have happened. If it wasn't for sin, Jesus wouldn't have had to come into the world to save us from our sin. Jesus became incarnate in order to save sinners. That's why he came in the first place as a baby in the manger. Think of all the problems and concerns that you have right now. Don't think too hard about them, but just kind of make a bit of a list. What's the things that are on your mind that are worrying you, concerning you right now? Sin is a much, much bigger problem that you have than all those problems put together, but it's been dealt with by Jesus at the cross if your faith is in Him. Sin is our biggest problem by far, but it's dealt with by Jesus at the cross. So today's hard-hitting message, but it's really appropriately timed actually uh, on the eve of Christmas. So I'm going to pray that we can hear God's Word in our tired, tired, starting to kind of chill out state and take it on board. Loving Father and Almighty God, we ask you that by your Holy Spirit, you'll work in us now to focus on your Word, to listen to it attentively and to respond uh, in appropriate 
uh, law-abiding action, that we might live our lives for Christ as saved sinners. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a bit of a buzz up here. I don't know if it's bothering anybody else or if it's possible to make it go away. (laughs) If it's not, it's okay. It has now. Um, So let's dive in. Verse 17, have a look in your Bibles. If you've shut your Bible, open it back up to chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. It's really strong, absolute language, isn't it? Now, this passage may sound familiar to you. I'm going to have a look at the screen. Can you kind of kind of read that? You don't need to kind of take that all that information in. But on the left side of the screen is Romans 1, 18 to 32. 18 to 32. Um, and on the right is Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. And they're really similar. Ephesians 4, 17 to 19 is like a summary of Romans 1, 18 to 32. And you can see on the screen, the first stage on the road to judgment is not fist-shaking rebellion and rejection of God. The first stage on the road to judgment is hardness of heart and stubbornness when it comes to submitting to His Word and to His law. If you're unwilling to make time to read God's Word, and unwilling to make every effort to live God's way in every area of your life, then Romans 1 and Ephesians 4 both say you're on the road to God's judgment and eternal damnation. It begins with stubbornness and laziness and ignorance. And this hardness of heart then leads to stage 2, which is darkness. As we get stubborn and ignorant and we don't submit to God's word. It says there in verse 18, their hearts are hardened, they find themselves darkened in their understanding. You can't find your way in the dark, can you? Apologies if you heard this story before, we made it five years ago. Lara and I visited Janolan Caves once and they led us deep into the caves, into a cave where there's no natural light. It's hard to get your head around the concept that there's absolutely no light. We all turned off our torches. Who's been in that cave before? We all turn the torches off and it's pitch black. You can't see at all. You can't see hand in front of your face. You can't see the person standing next to you. We were standing in a group. I took the opportunity to grab Lara and give her a bit of a smooch uh, in the crowd, knowing that no one could see her, knowing that she'd be embarrassed anyway, but knowing that she'd be a little bit flattered as well. Um, it was dark. And that's the darkness that ignorance leads us to, with stubbornness and hardness of heart, We end up in that darkness of understanding, futility, time-wasting thinking. Um, Can't make sense of life. Your life ends up a waste of time because of God's purposes in the world. And then it gets worse. Darkness of understanding leads to judgment, it says there in 4.17. Um separated from the life of God 
it says in verse 18. Eternal damnation is at stake. The final, and then after that, is a complete giving over to sin in your life and God hands you over. People go full bore in their sin. Public indecency, greed, every kind of uncleanness begins to happen as we give ourselves over to this life of darkness. Now look at the world around us and try to convince me that God has not handed over the Western world already in their darkened thinking and futile thinking. The Western world has been handed over to every kind of impurity, dishonourable passions and shameless acts. We worship material comfort. We detest the notion of the smallest skerrick of suffering for ourselves or for our children. We so worship sex that the online pornography website Pornhub is one of the top 10 most profitable companies in the world. It's a multi-billion dollar company. We so worship ourself that we are willing to deny the God-given right to life itself as we champion abortion and euthanasia. We so worship ourself that we're willing to deny God his choice to our gender thinking that science can overcome God's intricate work in us made from conception through 40 weeks of gestation to birth as a male or a female. We've decided we want to make that choice for ourselves. God can't make it. Avoiding the word of God and the law of God might seem like freedom, but it's not. It's a snare. It's a temptation of the devil. Like the unruly teenager who thinks that he knows or she knows better than their parents when in fact they don't and they're letting themselves into a lot of trouble and they find that out the hard way. So we can be when we become stubborn or just lazy in hearing God's word. Paul goes on, put off the old self. Brothers and sisters, this can't be the case for us as followers of Jesus. Paul writes, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that's in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We must commit to hearing God speak through his word, because God's word is restorative, it's regenerative, it changes our minds for good, it changes our thinking, it enlightens us in our thinking. God speaks to us through his word, cleansing and purifying our minds, warming the affections of our hearts towards himself and towards one another. In God's word, we're reminded afresh, it's not a belief system here that we adhere to. That's not what Christian, that's religion. Religion is adhering to a belief system. Christianity is relationship with a person. 
was a person, Jesus Christ, who loved us, who was born to save us, who died to pay the price for our sins and rose again in glory. Christianity is relationship with him, love for Jesus. That's what Christianity is. Christianity is a desire to live his way and no longer live our way. Jesus is described in John's Gospel as the only way, the absolute truth, and the only source of life. So we have to take off sin, to to cast it out, whatever it takes. Cast off sin, put off the old self, but then we don't walk around naked. We, We put on the new self the Christ-like self. We put on clothes of Christ-likeness given to us by Jesus himself. But you've got to realise that with each old worldly-like garment that you put off and each Christ-like garment that you put on, you stand out more and more from the world. You stick out. You don't blend in anymore to your neighbourhood. You don't blend in at your workplace, unless you work in a Christian workplace, which many of you do. You don't blend in to your community. You maybe don't blend into your family, your extended family, as you start to live more and more Christ-like. But as followers of Jesus, united to Jesus, we're called and commanded to live as Jesus did. I kind of, <laughs> in, my, in my best moments of thinking, I love commandments from God because God is good and he's true and he's right and if he tells me to do something, it's the best way. All I need to do is just do it. I sometimes say to the kids, don't argue with us. <laughs> just, just listen and do what we ask and your life will be so much easier. Um, God actually knows what's best for us. There's a real freedom and liberty in obedience to God. If we, but just do what he says. He promises our lives to be better. We don't need to go through the agony of reasoning whether or not God's word is good and right and best for me. We can just humbly obey So Paul then gives us five ways in which we're commanded. It's not a suggestion or an idea. It's a command from God in how to become imitators of God rather than the world. Firstly, tell the truth. Don't lie. Look at verse 25. Each of you must put off falsehood and instead speak truthfully to your neighbour. Notice that This is not like a school curriculum anymore where you have to posit everything in the positive. Teachers, you have to put everything in the positive. You can't say, Johnny did that wrong and he needs to do it like this, which is right. You can't do that anymore. Johnny has room for improvement and this is how he can improve. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible says, don't do this. Instead, do that. And this is what we've got here five times. Don't do this. Put off falsehood. Instead, speak truthfully to your neighbour. Why? 
because we're all members of one body. So to lie to one another is to lie to yourself, is to lie to your own body as a church. If as Christians we lie to one another, we lie to ourselves and we lie to Christ who is the head of the body. Truth-telling builds trust, it builds the body, it builds unity, it builds fellowship as we're honest with one another in church. One of the hallmarks of Gregory Hills Anglican Church is honesty, to be honest with one another. And I hope and I pray and I've seen that this extends to sharing our struggles with one another, being a bit open and honest about our struggles, perhaps in our growth groups, perhaps with a close trusted friend at church, we can we can share how we're really going and support and encourage one another. Gregory Hills Anglican Church isn't a place where you have to put on a happy face at the front gate and pretend like everything's okay when it's not. You can come in and be you and be having a bad day and be honest about that and find support and care and love and prayer in this church. That's being honest. It's a terrible lie to say I'm okay when you're not. And that shouldn't happen here. Jesus came to save those who didn't have it all together. (laughs) And we still don't have it all together, do we? We still struggle. We still sin from time to time. But we have Christ. We are in Christ together. Sanctification is an ongoing process of renewal in our lives, helping us to be more Christ-like. And it's a lifelong process. We'll never be perfectly Christ-like. We don't have it all together, but we do have Jesus. May we be a church that can be where we can be ourselves and be honest and bear, bear one another's burdens. Second command, in your anger, don't sin. Look at verse 26. In your anger, don't sin and don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. For if you do, you might give the devil a foothold. Human beings get upset from time to time, right? Frustrated, especially this year. Even angry. And the decisions that you make when you're angry is what God is concerned with here. In your anger with your children, do not yell and scream. Or smack in anger. I used to give the kids a little smack on the hand sometimes when they're toddlers. It gets the point across, but never in anger. Instead, in your anger... With your children, go for a walk if it's safe to leave them. <laughs> go for a walk if your you know, spouse is there. If you're angry, remove yourself from the situation, cool down, and then come back into the situation. God doesn't forbid feelings, but God wants us to be in good relationships all the time between Himself, us and Himself, and one another. God is all about good, loving relationships. And anger, acting in anger, harms those good relationships. Now, we're not perfect. We all make mistakes. And I think as in our marriages as well, we need to make sure we don't speak in anger. If you're angry with your spouse, leave the room, go for a walk, cool down before you act. (coughs) Remember, 
that your spouse is made in God's image, remember that you are fallen as well. You're not perfect either. Pride is a fantastic accelerant for anger. If in my pride I have unrealistic expectations of how others should be treating me, especially my spouse, when they don't, I'll quickly get angry. But conversely, in our humility, if we're constantly looking for a way to serve others and have no expectations of them, then however they treat us, we won't, we'll be slow to anger. The second thing he says here about anger is in anger, don't sin and don't let the sun go down on your anger. This is saying, work out your differences and solve your conflicts soon. Don't leave them to fester. Not necessarily the same day. Sometimes a good sleep can be the best medicine for sorting out a conflict because you're tired and you just need a rest. But this isn't a literal command to say, do not go to bed in conflict ever. Um, But it's saying soon, really soon, sort out your conflicts in your marriage, in your family, with your friends, with your church friends. Sort out your conflicts soon um, with one another. Sometimes sleep can be helpful for that. Don't let things fester. Come together soon and sort it out. Don't leave it days and weeks. We don't work out things soon. We give the devil a foothold to get in our ear and tell us that this relationship's bad, that this isn't going to work, that this person's terrible. And then the relationship falls apart. Friends, can I encourage you, can I urge you, if you're having problems in your marriage, to talk to somebody and talk to somebody soon, to share your struggles and share your hardships in your marriage with someone, so you can get the support and the prayer that every marriage needs. I suspect if we get help and support for our marriages when our troubles and problems are small, they'll never become big. We won't see marriages fall apart. I suspect if you talk to someone whose marriage has ended, they would tell you if they had Christian friends who did they shared their struggles with early in their marriage when their problems were small and they had that love and that care and that support and that prayer, their marriage may well have survived. So I want to encourage you if you're having any issues, conflicts, troubles, to share them with your growth group, perhaps with another couple at church who you know and you trust. And can I encourage you, if you're newly married, to seek wisdom from people who've been married a long time. Jeremy and Denise have been married a while. Talk to them. Say, how'd you do it? How'd, you know, what things did you have in place to last this long? Did you just kind of blindly fumble your way along or were you intentional in your marriage? I can promise you they were intentional in their marriage and they worked in their marriage to make their marriage work as we do. So if you're newly married, chat to older marrieds, support one another, find, learn how to sustain your marriage over the long haul. God loves to see relationships mended and healthy. He gives us one another and he gives us the Holy Spirit to help us on our way. Thirdly, work, don't steal. Work and then be generous. Verse 28, anyone who's been stealing must no longer steal, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those 
in need. Well, this one's pretty obvious. Um, don't steal anything from anywhere. Uh, don't steal off the shop shelf. Don't steal from other people. Don't steal Netflix or Stan or KO. Sharing it across households is stealing. We shouldn't steal. Multi-user accounts are meant for one household of people, just in case you didn't know. Stealing robs those who've worked hard for their entitled wages. Don't steal, rather work and also be generous. We learn contentment and we learn to trust in God when we're generous with our money. When we're generous to a point that we have to sacrifice our own comforts or desires with our money. That's when we learn contentment and we learn to trust in the Lord. God wants us to be generous to him, firstly, with our money to give to the church, but also to give to those in need. Ask yourself, what percentage of the money that God entrusts to me do I keep for me and what percentage of it do I give to God? What percentage of the money that God entrusts to me do I keep for me and how much of it do I give to those in greater, much greater need than myself? Work it out. In your heart of hearts, would you say you're being generous to those in need and generous to God? If the answer is yes, praise God. That's fantastic. We're living in obedience to him. Fourthly, don't swear. Rather say only encouraging words. Verse 29, don't let any, un any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Um, I don't think it's talking about kind of saying rude words exactly, only. It's talking about saying, only saying things that are helpful in building people up and encouraging them. Swear words aren't helpful in building people up and encouraging them, so that's why we don't say those. But we don't say anything that's, not, that's discouraging or tears people down. We don't say discouraging things as Christians. We don't... We're actually a real... We're not chameleons when it comes to the Aussie culture of taking the mickey out of each other every opportunity we get. We're countercultural to that. We say things that are encouraging and that build others up only. In our marriages, it's the same. We say things that build one another up only. And it's not okay to say, oh, we have an understanding in our marriage where, you know, we give each other a really hard time and it's okay. It's not okay. God says it's not okay. We need to be encouraging with our words, always. To our spouses, to our friends, to our siblings, to our families, to our colleagues. We don't join in the Aussie culture of criticising and tearing one another down. Because it's disobedient to the word of God and so it's sin. Lastly, don't be unkind or bitter, be kind and compassionate. Verse 31, 32 do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Paul's talking to the church. I'm fascinated to know what sort of church it was in the first, first century. It says get rid of brawling. Was there brawling? 
in the first century church? Punch-ups? There were soldiers and farmers everywhere. There might have been punch-ups. It's not unthinkable. Um, I reckon there's a whole sermon in these two verses, but suffice to say, God's plan for his people, God's rule for his house, is that they're kind and caring to one another all the time. Not just when you feel good, not just when you feel like it, all the time. Kind and caring, humbly putting others' interests ahead of our own, not grumbling as we do so, but joyfully serving one another, not self-asserting and demanding of others in the room, including me, but humble and compassionate as we serve one another in love. People with disabilities are often drawn to churches because people there are kind and including, and they find a home, which is fantastic and great. May our church grow rapidly in number of people with disabilities. Let's wrap up. This is the kind of church, friends, I'd love you to read over it again and again and meditate on chapter 4, verses 17 through to 5. This is the kind of church we want to be. And I'd, this is the kind of church you want to be a part of. This is the kind of church I want to be a part of. And I think this is the kind of church we are and need to continue to be and grow in. A church where people are genuine and true to one another, not trying to outdo, not trying to impress, here for one another, got each other's backs. A church where members are welcoming to everyone and anyone, no matter who they are, no matter what age, stage or culture they are in. A church where we serve and love and are committed to one another. Now, can I make a little, little gentle encouragement to you? It's the 20th December in 2020, the year of the COVID pandemic. So I say this with fear and trepidation, but <coughs> I think we could do better at loving one another and being committed to one another with our punctuality. We are getting later and later and later at the time we arrive to church. At 9.30 this morning, John <laughs> kind of looked at me and it's like, it's 9.30, um, but there's eight people in the room. I think four <laughs> people in the room at 9.30. And now, it's been a huge year and we're wrecked, and so it's not a big deal. It's not. But just something to think about. Can we commit to one another by being at church at least on time, if not a bit early? It means you've got to kind of arrive at at least 25 past if you've got kids to get them out of the car and get in the gate, and maybe 20 past if you always forget to register, um, like I often do. When you got to register. So, just an encouragement. Can we love one another? Can we love the band too, who get here just after eight and set up and then practice hard because time's actually short? And then at 9 30, when they've made sure they're already on time to sing, there's eight people in the room. I'm going to be conservative. Um, yeah, just a general encouragement to love each other in that way. And when new people come and there's no one here at 9.30, that's discouraging for them. And it's great if there's a whole bunch of people here to welcome new people. That's the kind of church we want to be part of, don't you? That's the kind of church you want to be part of. That's the kind of church... Imagine you brought your friends to church for the first time. You invited them. 
They were coming separately. They turn up at 9.30 when someone leaves at you. That's not what you want. Um, why? Because Christ laid down his life for us. We live for him. We're forgiven for our hardness of heart. We're drawn back into relationship with the Father in heaven. And even when we stray, I was encouraging to hear Dean's story a little bit. Even as we stray, we're drawn back in by the love of the Father. We're not perfect, we never will be this side of heaven, but we're loved by Christ. It's not how our culture lives, so it's hard. You'll stand out, you might be despised, you might even be hated in your family or your workplace, but that's what we're called to do. And I'm going to close by reading the words of chapter 5, 1 and 2 again, as I read when I started the service. 5.1, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Amen. Let's continue in prayer. Thanks, Andrew. Let's pray in response to what we've heard from God's Word and a few other prayer points. Heavenly Father, we pray that we will put off sin and put on godliness and Christ-likeness. Help us to put off worldly thinking and to put on godly thinking. Help us to be like you in righteousness and holiness. Lord, you know our hearts, you know our sins. We pray that we would become more Christ-like each and every day. We pray that your Spirit be at work in us in our marriages, in our families, in our relationships with one another, uh, that we would be um, more and more Christ-like. Help us to love and serve others, uh, see them, see their needs before our own needs, and help us to be building up each other, to be encouraging and spurring one another on to finish this race that's before us, Lord. We thank you that we get to celebrate Christmas, well, the arrival of your son Jesus into the world. Thank you that he gave up his position of authority to dwell amongst mankind. Thank you that Jesus, being fully God, took on the nature of a man to save mankind from our sins. And we thank you that we live in a country where we are free to celebrate this wonderful occasion each year. Uh, we pray for the coronavirus situation around the world. Uh, we pray for healing for those who have contracted the virus. Restore them to full health, Lord. Uh, comfort those who are grieving the loss of family or friends. We pray it would be with them. We pray that vaccines and cures will be developed and freely available to all people. And we pray for the latest outbreak in Sydney. We pray that you'd limit the spread of the disease and that further lockdown measures wouldn't be necessary. Thank you for our governments and health officials who've had to make some very tough decisions this year. And we pray that you'll continue to give them wisdom as they try to protect our community. And Lord, we pray for our government, uh, our leaders at federal, state and local levels. Uh, may these men and women make wise decisions that benefit all people, but particularly the weak and the disadvantaged in our society. May they acknowledge that their authority comes from you, that you are the truly in control of all things. And we also want to pray for our emergency services at Christmas time. And we pray for the many and varied ways that they serve our community. Uh, we thank you that they give up time with their families to look after us in emergencies. And we particularly pray for them at Christmas, uh, that they may miss family gatherings while they ser serve us. We pray for Christians in the emergency services. 
that they would be your ambassadors in these difficult workplaces. We pray that you'll keep all of our servicemen, uh, emergency servicemen and women safe as they serve our community, particularly during COVID. And all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.